Let's go to the Lord in prayer now once again. God, we've sung this morning of your greatness, that you are the Lord of all creation, the one who rules over heaven and earth. We've sung this morning of your active presence with us. Your spirit is here among us today to sanctify, to awaken faith, to convict of sin, to give strength where we are weak. And so, Spirit, we ask that you would be active and at work in and among us for the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, we've sung this morning of your faithfulness, that throughout history, from age to age, you have made and kept promises, and because of that, we can worship you and we can trust you. And we've sung this morning of your love and your grace, that you have come, Jesus, and shed your blood for sinners like us so that we could be reconciled with the Father, so that we could be resurrected to eternal life to enjoy your presence forever. And Lord, in in light of all of this, we give you thanks, we give you praise, and we ask now that you'd continue to speak to us through the preaching of your word. And we pray all of this in the name of our Savior Jesus, amen. So Genesis chapter 48 this morning, we have been in Genesis for a little over a year and we are nearing the end. This is really the final few chapters of the book of Genesis. Um, I wanna share just a brief story with you this week um, we've sat around on the couch a lot the last couple weeks. Well, this week, it was on Thursday night, we turned on uh, the Kansas City Chiefs preseason game. It was their first preseason game. They have a new quarterback, Pat Mahomes. We wanted to see what he was all about. We turned it on just a few minutes before the broadcast started, and my wife made a comment about some of the commenta- commentators. She said, wow, it seems like it's their preseason too. They seem kind of amateur right now. She just, you know, funny comment we were laughing about together. And one of my younger kids, I think it was Olivia, and Olivia's seven, she piped in and said, what does amateur mean? Well, my other daughter, Grace, who is nine, she piped in very confidently and answered that question. She she said, amateur means that they weren't acting their age. They were being silly uh, and not being responsible like they should. So I got a chance to explain to her the difference between immature and amateur because those are different words, right? And they mean different things. Um, and some of my kids have heard the word immature used quite a bit. They hadn't used, heard the word amateur used very often. So I got to explain the difference um, between those two words to them. Amateur simply means not professional, right? Just a step below professional level. But immature, immature with an I, means underdeveloped or not fully grown, not to the capacity or the potential that you could be or that you perhaps should be. But that word immature also carries with it the idea that there's a capacity and even an expectation for further progress. The expectation and the goal for someone or something that is immature is that it will become mature. Whether it's an immature plant that you want to grow deep roots and grow tall and strong and bear fruit, or whether it's an immature person who still has a short little body because they're seven years old and who maybe doesn't have yet the wisdom and the self-control and the, and the experience that comes with maturity, the goal is to come to a level of maturity. And we see this is true in the area of, of our emotions. It's true for us physically, but it's especially true for us spiritually, especially in the arena of faith. We want to and we are called to a mature Faith, a mature faith is one that has grown to affirm the word of God and also to embrace the ways of God. A mature faith will produce a transformed heart, a changed mind, a transformed life. The necessity of faith in God, the necessity of faith in his promises 
specifically is a key theme in the patriarchal narratives, this second half of Genesis that we've been studying. In chapters 1 through 11, if you go all the way back to a year ago at the beginning of our study, we see that God is the powerful God of all creation, right? The one who made heaven and earth, the one who can send floods and do whatever he wills with the entire human population, confuse their languages, whatever it may be, he rules over heaven and earth. But following the call of Abraham in chapter 12, we discover that he is also the personal God of the covenant, the God who makes promises, special promises to one man named Abraham, promises about offspring and land and blessing. And this covenant, these promises are what shapes and defines the relationship between God and his people. It's very, very important. God's part is to say, I will, I will do this and I will do that. Man's part is to trust in God's promises and to submit to God's purposes. And that's what faith is. Trusting in God's promises, submitting to his purposes, embracing those things. That is faith. But as we've seen throughout Genesis, and as you've probably seen in your own life too, our faith is often not static. It's not just this this constant thing. It's something that often starts small and weak, and it needs to grow from immaturity to maturity. That's why Jude, in his letter, exhorts us to build yourselves up in your most holy faith. There's to be growth. There's something that's to be added to our current level of faith. The Apostle Paul gives thanks for the Thessalonian believers because, in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, he says, their faith was growing abundantly. Paul rejoices in that. He says, that's what I want to see. That's what God desires for us. But it's often a process, isn't it? It's a process. It sometimes takes a lifetime for our faith to grow to maturity. Well, we've been looking at the life and the career of Jacob and Joseph, and we've seen that for Jacob especially, he takes quite the long road to spiritual maturity, doesn't he? He's by nature a trickster, self-reliant. He's manipulative. But over the course of a lifetime, through the ups and downs, through the trials and the hardships, as well as the blessings, he eventually comes to learn who his God is and what it really means to trust him. His faith has finally reached maturity. Now in his old age, as he is literally limping to the finish line, remember God dislocated his hip in that wrestling match, he is finally able to now look back and see God's hand so clearly in everything that has happened in his past. But he's also able to look forward to the future with confidence, confidence that God will continue to work everything according to his divine will. At least that's how Paul puts it in Ephesians. And as we observe the actions of Jacob in chapter 48, what I want us to observe this morning is really four evidences of a mature faith. Four evidences of mature faith. I think we can see these things expressed in the actions and the words of Jacob. And my prayer is that God would form these same things in us. That he would use this passage and this church, this ministry, to help all of us grow in the maturity of our faith. So let's go ahead and look at verse 1 and dive in. It says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh, and Ephraim. We'll just pause right there for a moment. This scene, everything that happens in chapter 48, takes place after the entire family of Jacob has moved to Egypt to be reconciled with Joseph, 
right? Remember the one who'd been sold into slavery but then exalted to be the second command over Egypt. They'd all come together to be with Joseph. And in doing so, they've been rescued. They've found relief from the famine. Chapter 47, verse 28 tells us that Jacob and his family lived there for 17 years. It's quite a bit of time. But eventually, towards the end of that period of time, Jacob, in his old age, becomes ill, becomes bedridden, and everyone knows that the end is near. And just as Jacob once approached his aging father, Isaac, to receive the blessing, you remember that? He tricked his brother Esau and tricked his father as well. Well, similarly here, if you rule out the trickster part, Joseph comes to visit his father so that that very important blessing could be passed from one generation to the next. So that's what's happening here. And what we see in verses 2 through 6, the first observation of mature faith, is as the scene begins to unfold, we see that a mature faith draws confidence from the word of God. A mature faith draws confidence from the word of God. Look, verses 2 through 6. And it was told to Jacob... Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession." I'm going to stop right there. We see that Jacob's confidence is expressed in his rehearsal of God's promise. We get a picture here of a man who is physically weak. He has to summon everything that's in him to just even sit up in bed. But he is spiritually strong. Though his health is failing, his faith is now burning brighter than ever. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen. What reason did Jacob have for such faith, for such assurance, for for such conviction? Well, the basis of his faith was nothing less than the very word of God. His eyes are dim, but he has not lost sight of God's revelation to him all those years ago. This is the foundation for his faith. Look at the source of his confidence in verse 3. He says to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me, in verse 4, and said... Consider the source of his confidence. It's nothing less than the one who spoke to him, God Almighty. In the Hebrew, this is El Shaddai, the God who has all power to do all things exactly as he desires. The one who spoke the world into existence is the one who spoke these promises. And God has never cried wolf. He's never bit off more than he can chew. God's never written a check that he couldn't cash. Right? Jacob knows who it was that made these promises to him. And he is confident that God has spoken. Look at the substance of this covenant promise. What did God say to him? Verse 4, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. We saw last time that the children of Israel, the sons of Jacob and their, their sons, he and his grandkids, there were 70 people in total. 
And already we see God's blessing in that, right? We see fruitfulness, we see prosperity, we see offspring, but this is just a foretaste of what is to come. They are to be a company of peoples in the future. And their destiny is not to be temporary landowners in Egypt, but to have an eternal possession in the land of Canaan. And Jacob is saying to his son Joseph and to his two grandsons, listen, I want to tell you about who our God is. And I want to remind you of what our God has said. He has plans that go beyond me. He has plans that involve you and your descendants and their descendants after them. And as great as the blessings are now that we're experiencing, I mean, Joseph is the second in command in Egypt and is prosperous and God in his wisdom has put him there and he's been able to save up all this food so that we can survive and we're dwelling in the land of Goshen and everything's going right. This is nothing compared to what God is still going to do for us one day in the future. He wants to make sure that the next generation holds to this promise the same way that Abraham did the same way that Isaac did, in the same way that he has. His confidence is expressed in his rehearsal of the covenant blessings, but his confidence and his faith is also expressed in the adoption of Joseph's sons. Look what he, look what he does next. After he rehearses God's covenant blessings in verse 6, he says, and the children that you fathered after them, sorry, back up, verse 5. I gave you the wrong verse. Verse 5, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, what's going on here? This is kind of confusing. If you go visit um, some of you parents in the room, young parents, you go visit your folks for Thanksgiving, right, in a couple months, and they say, hey, Paul and Elizabeth, are mine. You'd say, Jack, what are you saying, right? Uh, these are my kids. But this is literally a statement of adoption. Uh, not in the sense that he's going to take um, Joseph's sons away from him, but he's elevating Joseph's two sons to the same status as his own sons, that they would have the same share, a legitimate, uh, a, a legitimate uh, call to be heirs with the other sons of Joseph. Jacob has 51 other grandsons. He's got a lot of grandkids. But these two receive this special blessing and honor and status. They are now legitimate heirs on par with Jacob's other sons. Now, this not only shows love for Joseph and blessing and honor for Joseph. I mean, what a legacy for Joseph that his two sons were elevated to the status of, of the children of, of the very sons of Israel, that they would have tribes named after them. And that's a really big deal. That's an honor for Joseph. And, and it shows, I'm sure, appreciation and thanks to Joseph for how Joseph has been so instrumental in saving their family. Um, really, the presence of those two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, would be a permanent reminder of this blessing. Uh, but it's even more than just favor and gratitude for Joseph. This is more than just a special gift to his son Joseph. It also expresses his faith in the covenant promise. And I want you to think about how this works. You might say, how so? How does, how does Jacob adopting these two grandsons and elevating them to this status show his faith in God's promise? Well, consider this. Don't Joseph's oldest two sons, Manasseh, the oldest, Ephraim, the second oldest, don't they have a great privilege as the sons of Joseph in Egypt? Remember who Joseph is. Remember his status as the second in command over all of Egypt. Pharaoh said, everything that you say goes. He gave him full-blown, open-ended authority. 
to rule and to help administrate the government. I mean, Joseph was, that's almost as high as you can get in the land of Egypt. And his two sons would have had a great position of honor and blessing as the sons of Joseph. But in Jacob's mind, it's actually greater to belong to the family of God. From Jacob's perspective, to be heirs of the covenant promises was even a greater blessing and privilege and honor than being the sons of Joseph in Egypt. And adopting these boys, Jacob shows that he is confident that as his heirs, they will have something to inherit in Canaan and participation in God's covenant is better than anything in Egypt. You see, those who walk by faith, whether in Jacob's day or in ours, have a different way of measuring value than the world does. Don't we? Later, Moses would share the same mindset. Hebrews eleven twenty four says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. When Jacob says, Ephraim and Manasseh are mine, he's saying their privilege as sons of Jacob, sons of Israel in the land of Canaan is greater than anything they could have here in Egypt. It's an expression of his faith, a demonstration of his confidence that God would do everything he promised to do. You know, for us as Christians, our faith either stands or falls on the word of God, doesn't it? And a mature faith will draw confidence from the word of God. And this is why attacks on the trustworthiness of scripture are so sinister. A famous pastor recently said that we should unhitch our faith from the teaching of the Old Testament. And simply focus on the red letters in the new. Simply focus on the New Testament teaching. And distance ourselves from, I mean, a massive majority of our Bibles. Is that wise pastoral counsel? No, it's cutting the legs out from our faith. Attacks on the sufficiency and the trustworthiness and the truthfulness and the necessity of Scripture are sinister. If we cannot say with clear-eyed confidence that God Almighty said, if we're not confident of that, then we lose our foundation. But if what God says is true, then we have what Peter called a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And that's the source of our confidence. A mature faith will draw confidence from the word of God. But God's word doesn't just give us hope for the next life. It actually gives us a completely different way of approaching this life. It, it was enough that Jacob would say, hey, what we have in Canaan is better than every, everything you could possibly experience here in Egypt. You see, according to what God has said, worldly riches and honor and success are nothing compared to a place at the table in the family of God. According to what God has said, counter to what we may tend to think or feel, true greatness is actually being a servant. The last will end up being the first. We lose our lives, Jesus says, in order to save them. According to what God has said, salvation is not found in what we do for God, but rather in what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. According to what God has said, the way to be first is to be last, 
It seems so upside down and inside out and completely backwards from what the world would think, from what we might be tempted to believe. How can we possibly adopt this way of thinking and believing and living only if we are confident that God has spoken? A mature faith will draw confidence from the word of God. I think we see that demonstrated in the life of Jacob here, finally, at the end. But secondly, a mature faith recognizes the kindness of God's grace. Look in verse 7. Mature faith recognizes the kindness of God's grace. He says, As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Following this surprising adoption, Jacob acknowledges God's kindness in comforting his broken heart. If if you remember back when Rachel died, Rachel was the love of his life, and he lost her. He lost her all too soon. She, she died giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. And then after that, he lost his son, Joseph. He thought Joseph was dead, torn to shreds by wild beasts. He would later find out that wasn't true, but if you go back to where Jacob was, I mean, he was devastated. Having lost Rachel and then lost Joseph, he felt that everything that was precious to him had been taken away. But now God had restored Joseph to him. And through the adoption of Manasseh and Ephraim, he had increased the offspring of Rachel. Rachel's legacy was here expanded through this adoption. Now he has four. He has Joseph and Benjamin and Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob is thankful for all this because he sees it specifically as God's kindness to him. Here's the evidence of his faith. He knows that it's all from God. It's all from God, both the bitter and the sweet, the pleasure and the pain, trial and blessing. All of it comes from the hand of our sovereign and good God. Joseph can say in chapter 45 to his brothers, God sent me here, even though he was beaten and thrown in a pit and sold into slavery and falsely condemned and, and forgotten in prison. He said, God sent me here. Even though that involved a lot of heartache, a lot of pain, years of waiting, Joseph saw God's hand in it. And Jacob can also say, God has let me see your face and your offspring. You know, there are many who want to say that God is not sovereign, that God isn't in control, that certain things are not part of his plan. And the reason why many will say this is that they're attempting to protect God from accusations of not being good and attempting to give comfort to us that, hey, God didn't want this to happen. But here's the thing. God is either sovereign over all of it or over none of it. And we want him to be sovereign. I was talking to someone here among us this morning, and she said to me, you know, people have told me God didn't want some of those hard things to happen, but if God's not suffer, sovereign over the suffering, he can't be so, sovereign over the healing. I was struck by that. It, just, it flows so perfectly with what, what we see here in this confession of Jacob. We, we want God to be sovereign. 
over both. And those who have a mature faith will embrace this truth and recognize that when the blessings and the kindness and the comfort comes, that that too is from the hand of God. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. He says in verse 5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. A mature faith will recognize both the bitter and the sweet both come from the hand of our sovereign God. And in the case of this comfort and joy and this blessing, Jacob is thankful. He's thankful. And there's been a lot of surprises so far. To adopt his grandsons is a surprise. Um, he's, uh, Jacob is surprised at this joy and this comfort. He can't believe that God has allowed him to experience the sweetness of seeing Joseph and his children. But then comes an even bigger surprise because there's an unexpected bestowal of blessing in verses 12 through 20. And we see a third principle here. A mature faith, thirdly, embraces the unique nature of God's sovereign will. Look in verse 12. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. That's an interesting scene. The second command over all of Egypt, bowing before this displaced nomad, this shepherd. And Joseph, verse 13, took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand, toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys." And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. We see here that Jacob's faith is evidenced kind of in a unique way, in the blessing of the younger instead of the older. Having adopted these boys as his own sons, now Jacob is about to give them the blessing. And in doing this, he's elevating Ephraim and Manasseh to the status of firstborn. Reuben was technically the firstborn, but Reuben would not be the one to inherit the blessing. It was going to be the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. In 1 Chronicles 5.1, it says, Reuben was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, remember the issue with Jacob's concubine and Reuben's sin in that occasion. It says his birthright, because of that, was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. So they're going to get the inheritance. They're going to have the status of firstborn. And Joseph sees what's happening, and he takes his older son Manasseh in his left hand so that his father's right hand could be on his head, and he takes his younger son Ephraim in his right. That way, Jacob's left could be on him. He wants to make sure that the dominant, stronger hand, the right hand, is on the older because that's what tradition required. That's what was expected. That's the way things are usually done that the older receives the larger, greater portion of the blessing. But Jacob does something completely unexpected and crosses his hands to bestow greater blessing on the younger instead of the older. And then look at the sacred content of this blessing. Verses 15 through 16, this is really important what he says. He blessed Joseph, 
by blessing his sons and said, we see this, this threefold address to God. He says, first of all, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. This is the God of the covenant, the God who transcends generations. He's not just Jacob's God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac as well, the God who made promises. But he's also a personal God. He says, secondly, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Remember, Jacob was a, a, a keeper of livestock, goats and sheep and cattle and camels. So for him to use this metaphor to describe his God, that's a very personal. Shepherding is a very hands-on type of occupation. And Jacob says, my God has looked after me. He's guided me. He's fed me. He's protected me. Later, David would take up the same metaphor, writing Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. It's a deeply personal and comforting metaphor. The personal God has been faithful to him. But he says, thirdly, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. That word angel simply means messenger. And we've seen several times throughout Genesis that it's the angel of the Lord who actually receives worship as God and who speaks for God who is clearly the son of God. This is none other than the incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. So he's not referring to a created being here as the angel who has redeemed me. He's referring to the Trinitarian God, that second person of the Godhead. And God has redeemed him from much evil. He has protected him from Esau when Esau wanted to kill him, protected him from Laban when Laban got together all his kinsmen and they saddled up and they armed themselves to pursue Jacob as he fled uh, the land of Laban. He protected him as well from the men of Shechem and the surrounding peoples after that incident. He's protected him from famine and redeemed him from that catastrophe back in Canaan. He says, he has redeemed me from all evil. After this threefold address, he gives a plea for blessing. Bless the boys. Bless the boys. And what does he mean by that blessing? He says, in them let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And that the Hebrew term there for growing into a multitude has the idea of fish that are teeming, a massive swarm, a huge school in the ocean. He says, let these descendants be impossible to count. He's really expressing his desire here to God to continue his covenant faithfulness and fulfillment to this next generation. It's interesting if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews actually chooses this moment to highlight Jacob's faith. Hebrews eleven twenty one 21 says, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This is really the high point for Jacob. In faith, he is praying, God, do what you promised. Continue to be faithful to them and through them the way you have been to me and my father and my grandfather. He's literally praying in an Old Testament sense, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's not asking God for a favor. He's asking God for fulfillment. And this is the expression of his faith in the blessing of these boys. But Joseph is taken back by the surprising order of this and he responds a little bit stubbornly, he protests in verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But 
Jacob is even more stubborn than Joseph. He refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. You know, it's kind of funny. Joseph didn't have a problem with the younger being greater than the older when it was his dreams about the sheaves bowing down, right, and the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him. He didn't seem to have a problem with God's, with the unique nature of God's sovereign ways, elevating the unexpected to a position of greatness. That didn't bother him at all. But when it's his sons and something else going on, all of a sudden, he kind of chokes on that, doesn't he? Um, He doesn't like this turn of events. But Jacob doubles down and affirms that he knows what he's doing. I know, my son, I know. He He kind of assures him twice. Ironically, if you remember back in Jacob's youth, he had deceived his father when this blessing was bestowed. And his father, just like him, was nearly blind, right? Very dim. It was hard to see. Remember that Isaac had asked a similar question that Jacob asked. Jacob said, who are these? He wanted to figure out, okay, I know there's two boys here. I know it's Ephraim and Manasseh, but who's who? I want to make sure I've got them straight. Remember, Jacob, or Isaac rather, had asked, who is it, my son? And Jacob had lied and said that he was Esau. Jacob takes great care here to make sure he knows who is who. He did this on purpose. He says, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And he's not going to change his mind. He said, this is what's going to happen. We have to ask the question, why? Why did Jacob do it this way? Did God tell him to? Did God maybe reveal to him, I want you to bless the younger instead of the older? Did did Jacob, by some sort of wisdom, discern something in the boys that perhaps caused him to make this decision? Well, ultimately, the text doesn't tell us, so we can't say dogmatically. But when we step back and look not just at this text, but really at the whole story of Jacob, and even more at the whole story of Genesis, and even more at the whole Bible, right? We begin to see that Jacob is actually falling in line and submitting to and embracing the way that God often chooses to work. Remember, all the way back at the beginning, it was Seth, the thirdborn of Adam and Eve, through whom the promise would live on. Remember that it was Isaac, not Ishmael, who would be the bearer of the covenant. Remember that it was Jacob, the younger, not Esau, the older, who received the covenant blessing. Joseph, not the older ten, who was elevated to greatness. See, Jacob had experienced in his own life the unique nature of God's sovereign choice. And he knew that God doesn't often choose to work in the ways that we expect. God delights to use unlikely people, and he works through unlikely circumstances for a reason. What's the reason? So that when it's all said and done, he gets the glory. So that no one will be tempted to think that God's plan came about through human cleverness, or human strength, or man's nobility, or our own personal merit. By blessing the younger, Jacob is affirming this truth, and in a way, memorializing the fact that he was once the younger brother who became the heir of God's covenant promise. And this too is a sign of a mature faith. A mature faith will embrace the unique nature of God's ways. To be honest, that's sometimes kind of hard for us, isn't it? It's one thing for us to believe God is sovereign, God's in charge, 
And our God is in the heavens, as Psalm says, and he does whatever he pleases, right? We can believe that. It's one thing to affirm that it's true, but it's another thing to embrace it and to love it, to love this truth, to find comfort in it, to find joy in it, to submit to it. But the reality is scripture calls us to consider and reflect on the unique way in which God often moves his plans forwards. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26, Paul says, consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? For this reason, Paul tells us, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's how our God likes to operate. Jacob understood this, and he embraced it. He embraced it. You know, we may be tempted to think, you know, if only some famous person would become a believer, that would legitimize Christianity. It would change the world. People get excited when a Hollywood actor mentions faith in God or when a famous recording artist endorses a Christian author. But friends, this is not the way that God typically works. God likes to use fishermen and tax collectors who are willing to leave it all behind to follow him. God likes to use regular guys who go to work and do their best and are willing to tell their coworker about Jesus. God likes to use tired moms to make an eternal impact on the hearts of their kids. He likes to use busy students who are willing to befriend the person that nobody wants to talk to. God likes to use frail, elderly saints who feel that they have not much left to give, but what they do have, their time and energy, they offer to serve God. That's how God likes to work. You know, we may be tempted to think if only our church could get big, if we could buy a big building, you know, at a very visible part of town, then we could have a successful ministry. But God often works through small and seemingly insignificant groups of Christians who are just faithful to share the gospel and disciple other people. Some pastors are tempted to think if only I could have a large social media presence and get invited to speak at some conferences, maybe get a book deal, then I could have a significant impact for the kingdom. But God likes to work through normal and unremarkable men who simply love their family and preach the word and love their flock and then die and are forgotten. That's how God builds his church. That's how he's been doing it for thousands of years. This is a a reality that those who are mature in their faith will embrace and delight in. We will love that God does it this way because we love it when God gets the glory and no man. It's a sign of mature faith. And then finally, we see that mature faith is certain of God's promises beyond death. Certain of God's promises beyond death. Verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Jacob here is a realist. I am about to die. He's been talking about that for years and years, but he's finally correct. He's right this time, okay? He actually is about to die. 
But even death cannot diminish his confidence in God's faithfulness. Two of everyone's favorite words in scripture. He says, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. He knew that God was doing something bigger than him. And his passing from the scene will merely signify a new chapter in God's unfolding plan. That's not going to stop God's plan. It's not going to cancel his covenants. He knows that this train is moving forward, whether or not he's still here to see it or not. And he's confident in that. And he is so sure of this that on several occasions, he insists on being buried in the land. In chapter 47, in chapter 49, on multiple occasions, we see how adamant Jacob is. He says, don't bury me here. Take my bones back to Canaan. Put me in the cave with my dad and my grandpa. That's where I belong because that's where our people belongs, and that's where we're going to be. That's what God is going to give us. He wanted to make sure they didn't put down roots in Egypt. Even his blessing of the boys here in this chapter presupposes that they will have something to inherit. I mean, he doesn't have the rights to give them land in Egypt, but he has the authority to give them land in Canaan, and he does that because he believes they're going back there. Consider the significance for Joseph as well. Though Joseph is a great Egyptian ruler, Jacob identifies Joseph's portion in the land of Canaan, a particular slope, this particular area of land. He's confident that they will one day return and possess the land of promise and that this is a greater blessing than anything Joseph has access to in Egypt. It's really a reminder for Joseph that their destiny doesn't lie there, but back in the promised land. You see, to bear the blessing... To be recipients of God's promise is to look in faith to the future and to seek the fulfillment of God's promise. And a mature faith will be certain of God's promises even beyond our own death. If Jesus doesn't come back, every one of us here is going to die. It may be sooner than we expect or maybe a long time from now, but it's coming for all of us. But for those who have faith in Christ, it's not the end. It's a promotion, right? We get to go to glory. We get to be free from sin. We get to be with Christ. We get to experience that eternal rest that Christ has promised us. We too have great and precious promises. This has significance for us today. We believe in resurrection. We believe in the return of our king. We believe in a new heaven and a new earth where all things will be put right. And this is not just a point of doctrine. This doesn't just belong in the eschatology chapter of our theology books. This is something that is practical, something that is significant, something that should have great weight in our daily lives, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we respond, the choices that we make. It's a life-transforming truth. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul unpacks and explains and defends the glorious doctrine of the resurrection. God promised to raise us up, and you have to die before you can experience the fulfillment of that promises. So death does not get in the way of our faith in these things. And Paul explains all of this, and notice how he concludes the chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Boom, confidence. That's how it ends. Victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, therefore, because that is true, because everything I've been teaching you is true, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Not be steadfast after you die and you're resurrected. Be steadfast now because of what is coming. He says, be immovable. Not one day in the future when God fulfills all his promises. Be immovable now in the present when we're still looking to those promises. 
He says we are to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. The promise of what's to come and the surety of that motivates us to get busy now, doing what God has called us to do in the meanwhile. He says, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, what you believe about the next life will impact how you spend this life. We have victory in Christ, Paul says, so don't lose heart. It's easy to lose heart, isn't it? We look around at our world, we look at our own lives, we look at our own struggles, we looked at what's going on in society. We say, man, can things get any worse? Yes, they can, they probably will, but Paul says, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart, we have victory through Christ. But he also tells us we have a job to do. We may look around and say, wow, it seems that everything's going against us. But don't quit, don't quit because we know how the story ends, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how much opposition or disappointment we face, we know that our labors matter. We know that our God is good. We know that he keeps his promises, and we know that Jesus has overcome. We know that Jesus has overcome. You know, you kind of have to be careful about reading the Bible and always looking for human examples to follow. If you've been with us through our series in Genesis, you've seen that most of the sermons here have not been be like Abraham, be like Isaac, be like Jacob. Because a lot of times they're actually stumbling all over the place. Um, And especially in the life of Jacob, it's pretty rare that we would want to emulate him. But in this instance, we do see at the end of his life a fully formed faith. And that is something that we ought to aspire to. These same evidences of maturity and a strong faith of the things that we want to see in our lives as well. In Hebrews 6.11, the author writes, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here at the end, Jacob is a good example of what it looks like to have a mature faith. The perspective that he had here at the end of his life was shaped by the word of God, thankful for God's kindness, submitted to the uniquely sovereign nature of God's ways, and full of hope for the future. Does that describe you? Is that that the kind of faith that you possess this morning? Are you perhaps lacking sometimes in confidence in the word of God? Sometimes that looks like fear or doubt. Sometimes it just looks like apathy or maybe confidence in something else like our own abilities, our own wisdom, our own strength. Does your confidence come from the word of God? How about you? Are you thankful for the blessings as well as the trials that God brings into your life? You know, sometimes when we experience comfort or provision or blessing, it's easy to have a sense of entitlement or to just be forgetful. We're like, remember when Jesus healed all those lepers and most of them ran off and never even said thank you? Sometimes that's what we're like. Do you pause to give thanks to God for his comfort and his grace? Or are you forgetful, maybe cynical? How about the unique nature of God's sovereign working in your life? It's easy to become resentful or maybe to be like Joseph and be a little bit frustrated when God doesn't do things the way that we think he should do. Are you able to embrace God's working? Are you short-sighted in your faith? Do you look ahead to the future? Does it fill you with confidence and joy 
for the present to endure the difficulties and the hardships? Or are you short-sighted? Is it, is it hard for you to see anything beyond what's happening to you today? Guys, this is hard. I'm not saying this is easy. And it takes a lifetime. And God is gracious. I think of the prayer of that man in Mark, I believe, help my unbelief. I think a lot of us probably pray that on a regular basis. Perhaps as you consider these things this morning, the Holy Spirit is revealing areas in which your faith needs to grow, needs to move towards maturity. I just want to encourage you to cry out to God and ask him to forgive you for your unbelief and ask him to strengthen your faith. Ask him for grace. Ask his spirit to be at work in you and to complete the work that he began, to strengthen you and change you into what he intends you to be. He'll do that. That's what he wants to do. That's what he's planned to do. And it's a whole lot easier if we cooperate with him and seek that rather than digging in our heels and kind of pulling at the bit. I hope that you've been encouraged this morning by observing Jacob's faith. And I hope it gives you a desire and perhaps a little bit of a clear goal in what it is that we are to be working towards and cultivating in our own lives. My prayer for our church this morning is that God, by his grace, would grow us. That we would move towards maturity through the power of his spirit. And that we would mature in our faith and that we would keep looking to his promises. We have a great savior. We have a faithful God. And he hasn't given up on us. Let's look to him in faith and seek to invite his continued working in our lives. God, as we look to this story, um, we are humbled to see your patience with a man like Jacob. So many failures in his life, so many character flaws and issues, and yet you're so patient and gracious. You didn't give up on him, and at the end, you brought him to a place of maturity. And Lord, as we think about our own lives, we know that we too are unlikely candidates to be your children. We're undeserving. We're often weak. We get distracted. We stumble. We struggle with unbelief. Lord, as we read this text, um, we're challenged to see the kind of faith you desire to produce in us. And so, God, we ask that you would do your work in our hearts to cultivate this kind of faith. Move us from immaturity, from an underdeveloped faith, to maturity that has roots. I pray that you would help us to look to Jesus, to consider the promises you've given us through him. Because of his death and resurrection, we know that for all who believe, there is resurrection coming for us too. There is rest, there is reward, that one day you're making all things new and that those who belong to you will have a great imperishable inheritance. Not just that, God, you promised to be with us, you, along the way, you promise never to leave us. You promise that nothing in the universe can separate us from your love. Lord, strengthen us this morning. Encourage us and comfort us. And I pray that we would respond with humility this morning and with faith to the truths we've been taught. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.